You're listening to the sermon podcast of North Valley Baptist Church. This week's message is preached by Pastor Scott McGrady. Well, if you would take your Bibles and turn to 2 Timothy, we finished 1 Timothy, and now we're going to endeavor to go through 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 1, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 7. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. As we think of this letter, the second letter of the Apostle Paul to Timothy, we have to understand that looming in the background of the historical context of this letter is persecution. And persecution is seen throughout church history. Uh, Even as we're going through the book of Acts in Sunday school, uh, we've only made it into the sixth chapter, and yet we've already seen persecution break out against the church. Uh, Almost right from the start of the church, there's persecution. As we saw the Jewish leaders, because of jealousy and and angry and anger that uh, the apostles would continue to teach in the name of Jesus Christ, even though they told them not to, we see, again, right from the start, and we can bring it all up, go right through church history, right up to the modern day in different parts of the world, and see that there is persecution against God's people, that there is a hatred for God that is taken out on his people. And though it's true that because of the Reformation taking hold of Western culture, uh, and especially in our country, we have seen an, uh, and experienced an unprecedented time of peace in church history. Uh, but we've discussed before that uh, on the, the larger scale of the culture, we are quickly seeing that crumble before our eyes. And I really believe that persecution is imminent, Uh, and is unavoidable as long as the Lord tarries. Uh, If he does not return uh, with before that time, uh, we will face persecution. His church will, in this country, even face persecution. And so the question for us is, if the Lord tarries and we live and persecution may come in our lifetime, how would we respond? What will our response be? when it's dangerous to be labeled as a Christian, uh, when it's dangerous to meet as a church and to share the gospel with others, how will we respond to that? How will we raise our children to respond if persecution comes in their lifetime? According to the best traditions that we have, as, as far as we can tell from the historical records, every apostle of Christ Jesus died a martyr's death, except for the Apostle John, though there were many attempts on his life, he was eventually too exiled on the island of Patmos as an elderly man. But as we see persecution and the examples of it, it is a serious thing. And we have so many examples of those who walked away from the faith when it got too hard. But we also have many examples of those like the apostles who stood strong even in the face of death. And so again, we want to ask the question, how would we respond? Uh, To some degree, we won't know until we face it. But that doesn't mean we can't be preparing now to respond. And getting a a right theology of suffering and persecution 
and what it means to follow Christ in a world that hates Christ, to live for him no matter the cost, to understand that he is worthy of whatever that cost is. And so going through 2 Timothy uh, should help us do that. Again, it's written in a time of raging government-sanctioned persecution. And the Apostle Paul himself is chained in a dungeon for his faithfulness to Christ. While many of those that were co-laborers with him in the gospel have, have turned away. And so seeing this, Paul has concern for his beloved Timothy. And so he writes to Timothy, Timothy, who's been serving faithfully in Ephesus, he writes to him to encourage him to remain faithful. And so as we begin this study in 2 Timothy, there, there are a few things we should note. In this letter, we see the apostle pouring his heart out to his young protege. And again, we've been working through Acts in Sunday school, and, and Lord willing, when we get to the end of Acts, we will see the apostle Paul sitting in prison. Uh, he's under house arrest there at the end of Acts. And he's awaiting trial before Caesar. But it's clear, though, that as he's sitting there in house arrest, from the letters that he wrote during that time, especially the letter to the Philippians or to Philemon, that, that Paul had every expectation of being released, of being freed. And I'd argue that Luke, writing the book of Acts, he, he closes the book with that vibe as well. But what we see here in 2 Timothy is quite a different situation. Uh, Paul is not as comfortable of a holding as he is in Acts. He's not in a home. In Acts, he's surrounded by friends and co-workers and, and was freely accessible to those who wanted to see him. But as we come to 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 16, it would seem that that's not the case. And instead of laborers and co-workers and friends around him, uh, he's instead deserted by many who once stood with him. And 2 Timothy also makes it clear that Paul had no expectations of being released from prison, of being free except by his pending martyrdom. So this is clearly not the same imprisonment that we see in the book of Acts. Instead, Paul must have been released from that imprisonment as he expected, and then went on a fourth missionary journey, uh, which would include where we saw going, talking about 1 Timothy, when, when him and Timothy were in Ephesus, and then he left Timothy there to go on to Macedonia, and he sent Titus to Crete. And at some point, though, Paul gets arrested again, possibly at Troas, which there may be some hint of that uh, in this letter, or some argue that he would have been arrested in Nicopolis. But it's during this imprisonment that Paul writes his letter to, to Timothy, this second letter to Timothy. And so this would be during the great Roman Empire-wide persecution of the church under Nero, which began in 64 AD and lasted until 68 AD after Nero committed suicide. And so this letter would have been written, again, just shortly before Paul is martyred and uh, some argue Paul was martyred in around 67 A.D. Some argue it was earlier when the persecution started, around 65 A.D. But either way, this is, this is shortly before his death. And again, having been deserted with only Luke at his side, Paul wants to encourage Timothy to remain faithful. 
As others are ashamed of Paul and his chains for the gospel, he, he wants to encourage Timothy, do not be ashamed. And he calls Timothy to show himself approved, to be a faithful teacher and to continue in the teachings of the scriptures. Which would have been a hard task in that day. We sit here today not knowing that degree of persecution. But again, it doesn't mean it's not going to come. We do sit here today in, in an evil and wicked world, in a world where many are turning away from the faith uh, to either outright deny God's existence or, or to turn in, in love of their sin to a Christianity that suits them better instead of submitting to their Lord. We've also discussed how, again, we must be ready, ready to suffer and ready for whatever comes our way to remain faithful to God's word. And so with that, we begin to look at 2 Timothy. So if you would read with me, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. As we see here in Paul's greeting, uh, Paul asserts his apostleship, that he is indeed an apostle of Christ Jesus. And therefore, being an apostle, he is one with authority sent by Christ, speaks on behalf of Christ to Christ's church. And though Paul and Timothy are very close, as we see there in verse 2, that he calls him my beloved child, even though they're close, Paul still asserts his authority over him as an apostle. Matter of fact, uh, just even this expression of their relationship, being as a, a father and son relationship, though Paul was not... Timothy's biological father, uh, as we saw in 1 Timothy, he said that Timothy is his true son in the faith. Paul was instrumental, probably the most instrumental one, to develop Timothy in discipleship and his spiritual walk with the Lord. And so in that sense, he is a, a father to Timothy. And so even seeing the dynamics of such a relationship of father and son, uh, that does uh, give the idea of such closeness and the relationship that would be there between Paul and Timothy, but it also gives the idea of the authority that Paul had over Timothy as a father figure. Parents, though they love their children dearly, and parent and child love spending time together, nonetheless, parents are an authority over their children. And Paul, here's an authority over Timothy as an apostle. And he asserts this authority, as in this letter, he's giving instructions to Timothy. Instructions concerning Timothy's ministry to the church and on behalf of Christ. And so we see Paul, again, an apostle of Christ, and he's an apostle, as he says here, by God's will. 
He's an apostle, not because of anything about himself, because there is nothing in Paul that he should be chosen by God for such a task or for any task. But it's all owed to the calling on his life due to the will of God. And matter of fact, that's true of any one of us. All of us who are believers have been called by God into his service in one way, shape, or form. And that call on our lives to serve our God has nothing to do with anything about ourselves. Uh, There's nothing in any one of us that should qualify us and make us fit to serve God. But it's only because of his will that he has called us. And that for every believer in Christ, he has preordained for us to do good works. He has planned those works ahead of time. And so he has called us by his will. So again, it was by God's will that Paul was an apostle. This also shows that it wasn't of Paul's will. It wasn't that Paul was a a self-appointed apostle. It was the calling of God on his life. We saw in 1 Timothy that Paul was an apostle according to the command of God. And again, here, it's God's sovereign will. And here we see that, that Paul's call is to the gospel proclamation. He says here that it's according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. It's according to that gospel. And that's why Paul is an apostle, to proclaim that gospel. The gospel that says that anyone in Christ, uh, that is anyone who has Christ as their representative by faith, has life. And that's the promise of God. They have life. It's a guarantee. If you are in Christ, you have life, and you have life eternal. Due to sin, we are spiritually dead in our sin. We are helpless and hopelessly separated from God, unable to respond to any spiritual prodding in of ourselves. We are dead. We are lost. We are children of wrath. That's what we have earned in our sin against God. But God, by his grace, he, he quickens the dead heart. He makes alive and grants repentance and faith to those whom he saves. And if you, my friend, sit here and have yet to see your condition before God as what it is, as dead in your sin, that with every lie that you've ever told, with every lustful glance, with every selfish thought, that every time you you gave something else in your life, the place that God alone deserves, uh, that place of of ultimate priority and the, the seat of affection in your life, that with every rage and every bitter motive and every seed of hate in your heart, you, like the rest of us, have earned God's infinite wrath. And it is an infinite wrath because it is an offense against an infinitely holy God. If you will recognize that you cannot save yourself, if you will recognize that there's nothing you can do to fix yourself, but instead see your situation as completely hopeless as you are a slave to your sin. And so therefore cry out to God. Therefore turn to Jesus Christ by faith, trusting in him alone for only he is the Savior. Jesus, who is God, come in the flesh to live the perfect life that you and I could never live. To live on behalf of humanity who would trust in him to be saved. That he lived for us and he suffered and died in our place to take upon himself the wrath, that justice from God that we deserve. 
and having finished the work of salvation on the cross, satisfying God's justice for us. Though he died, he did not stay dead. He rose again on the third day. And he is alive. And if you will trust in this living Savior, the living Lord, you trust in him alone to save you, you will find your sins forgiven. You will find that he represents you before God. And so everything that is his becomes yours. His perfect law-keeping life becomes your law-keeping life. His death to satisfy the justice against sin becomes your death for sin. That you can be forgiven and made right before God the Father. This is the gospel. This is the promise of life for all who believe. And this is the ends of Paul's calling as an apostle to proclaim this gospel. And then in verse 2, we see Paul's address to Timothy. Again, he calls him his beloved child. Like we already mentioned in 1 Timothy, he called him his true or genuine child in the faith. I think the difference can be seen in the fact that now in this letter, as Paul is contemplating his death, he is all the more moved with his love and desire for Timothy, his affection for him. And so he calls him his beloved child. Paul's love for Timothy was very deep, like a father's love for his son. And we see Paul's greeting to Timothy, that it was full of grace, Grace, which is God's unmerited favor. It's full of mercy, which is God's loving kindness, and of peace. Peace is the, the wholeness and the, uh, the, the right relationship that we're brought into. Though we were enemies of God in our sin, Christ brings us into a right relationship with God. That we have peace with God. And having peace with God, we can then have an, an inward peace, a wholeness in ourselves. And being at peace with God, we are to be at peace with one another within the church. And all this is from God the Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. God the Father and Christ, they are the source of these spiritual blessings as they are the source of all spiritual blessings. We are only saved by grace. That's it. Nothing of ourselves. Not a thing of ourselves. By grace and grace alone. And we can only live this Christian life and able to obey our God by his grace and mercy. And living out in that grace and mercy and obedience to our Lord, we, we then live in his peace. We know his peace. We experience that peace. The peace that Christ has made for us with Christ, with God. And then we see in verse 3, it says, I thank God, whom I serve, as did my ancestors with a clear conscience, as I, met, as I remember you constantly, in my prayers, night and day. Paul gave thanks to God for Timothy. He thanked God, the God he served, as his ancestors served. Which, if you think about it, that's a little strange for Paul to say. <laughs> uh, uh, when Paul talks about his upbringing and, and what he inherited from his ancestors, he, he counts all that as loss there in Philippians, right? Uh, so it's a little strange that we would read him say that he serves God as his ancestors did. But in light of that, what this must be referring to is the Jewish patriarchs and their service to God. 
And so he served God. And Paul says here that he served God with a clear conscience. Which again is interesting. If you remember from 1 Timothy, Paul considered himself to be the worst or the chief of sinners. And yet, he says that he served God with a a clean or a clear conscience. How can he do that? Because he is trusted in Christ as his Savior. Being in Jesus Christ, there is forgiveness. His guilt has been transferred to Christ as Christ was on the cross. And then by faith, when Paul trusted in Christ, Christ's righteousness was, was credited to him. And that's what it is to be in Christ. That's what it is to have Christ as our representative. That, that's where salvation is found. And so Paul could serve God then with a, a clean conscience, despite considering himself, seeing himself as the worst of sinners. And my friends, that, that's the truth of the gospel. However great a sinner you may be, as one evangelist put it, you can't outsin God's grace. You cannot. The guilt that we have, no matter what it is we've done, no matter how evil our life has been, no one can make themselves unsavable to the Savior. For he is a wondrous Savior. That no matter what it is you've done, no matter what you come from, no matter what your past, he is mighty to save all who put their trust in him. And he will save all who put their trust in him. And now as we see here, that this God whom Paul served, as his ancestors served, this God who Paul served with a a clear conscience, is the God that Paul gives thanks to for Timothy. He is so full of gratitude to this God for Timothy. For Timothy's salvation, for sure. And again, not that Paul was specifically involved in Timothy's salvation, but also Paul had a front seat to see Timothy grow in the Lord as Paul discipled him. And he gives thanks to God for all of God's work in Timothy's life. Timothy, whom he loved so dearly. Now, are there those whom you, you love those who you care for, brothers and sisters in Christ, or, or maybe someone that you did have the privilege of sharing the gospel with and they, they trusted in Christ to be saved. And you see this person whom you love, you see the Lord working in their life, you see the Lord growing them in, in many ways and, and in their service to the Lord. Uh, do you not give God thanks for his work in that person's life? Paul sure did. And he shows just how grateful he was by saying that he gives thanks to God, the God he serves. He gives thanks to him continually. That he was coming to God over and over again to give him thanks for Timothy. And he really shows the extent of this with the metaphor day and night. Or it says night and day. That Paul just could not give God thanks enough. Doesn't the work of God in the lives of those we love make us so grateful and cause us to go to God in prayers of praise, thanking him for all of his work? It certainly should. It's only right that we would recognize him for all of his works of grace and mercy, 
And he has done so much. Uh, We could all give overwhelming amount of testimony of the great works of God in our lives and in the lives of those around us. And we should do that. Uh, We should be giving him the praise. We should be shouting those testimonies and sharing with others uh, that God's word calls us to do that, right? Uh, The psalmist tells us to give thanks to the Lord and to tell of all of his great deeds. We should be. He's worthy of it. He deserves it. He's done so many wondrous things. How could we not be grateful? How could we not be going to our God and with such gratitude over and over again, night and day, as all the work he's done and all of those whom we love? And Paul does this. Paul gives God thanks for Timothy. And we see here that he gives God thanks for Timothy as he longs to see Timothy. It seems that the last time he may have seen Timothy uh, is when they were in Ephesus together. Maybe when Paul made a a brief stop in Ephesus, uh, like we read in 1 Timothy, that he was planning to do. But actually, maybe not even that. We don't know for sure. Maybe Paul never made it back to Ephesus. Uh, Maybe he was arrested before that. And so maybe it had been a year or two, or, or maybe possibly even three years since he's seen Timothy. And so this time has passed, and Paul's arrested, and and now the end of Paul's life is near. That's so obvious to Paul. And so he longs to see Timothy one more time. And he does so, as he says here, remembering Timothy's tears. And whether this is in reference to uh, many of the trials that they shared together, uh, being there with one another, crying together through whatever it may have been, Or maybe it was reflecting on the last time they parted ways from one another. In any way, Paul was reflecting on the love and relationship that they had with one another. And that spurs Paul on to desire all the more to see Timothy again. To see Timothy again, Paul says that it may bring him the fullness of joy. Just as a parent who for whatever reason, may not have been able to see their child for a long time, would have such great joy to be reunited with their child again. Uh, Paul longs for that joy to see Timothy again, even just one more time before he died. And and thinking about this, I'll, I'll just say, I think what we see here is the love and the gratitude that grows between believers as they work together in the ministry, as, as Paul and Timothy work together as they serve together in the church. I think we see here the deep love and affection that grows between one who is a mentor and that mentor's disciple. And so therefore, I think that this this love and commitment to one another and, and desire for each other and to build that relationship is an opportunity that each one of us has as we're here at North Valley in God's church to serve together in God's church, to work together and grow together and build that relationship that way. And as we all have opportunity and responsibility to disciple others, to grow in such love and devotion as a family, and in some cases, too, even as a a father or son relationship or or mother and daughter relationship. Another thing that that drives Paul's affection for Timothy and his gratitude to God for Timothy is is what we see there in verse 5. Timothy's sincere faith. As the end of this letter, uh, we'll see that there were those whom Paul knew, even worked with for the gospel, whose faith did not prove genuine. 
as they abandon Paul because of his chains for the gospel. We see in chapter 4, verse 10, uh, Paul will mention a man named Demas, who, in love with this present world, deserted Paul. And so in the midst of such disappointment, to know Timothy, whom he loved so much, had genuine faith. And to reflect on that was certainly a cause for his gratitude to God. Again, as we've been seeing in our time, uh, many who have turned from the faith, um, I think we could be tempted to say that there's just been an unprecedented amount of that over the last few years. I don't know that that's true. I think uh, it's just more that those who have been turning away have been a lot of those who are more in the public eye, uh, well-known pastors and different leaders and such. And we've been seeing this as, as there are pastors unhitching themselves from God's word. Uh, or, or leaders trading in the profession of faith to pursue a godless lifestyle, or trading the truth for a lie in order to tickle pe- people's ears to to gather a following for themselves and and some uh, uh, having a product to sell. But there are those who, no matter what's been going on around them, have remained faithful. Uh, there are those who have been faithful, even uh, being despised uh, by the culture as they refuse to give in to the pressure that's been put on them. There are those who have been threatened in many ways and, and have been given false accusations against them, and, and yet they have stood firm. And such of those should be an encouragement to us, for us to continue to stand firm. As they remain faithful, they encourage us to remain faithful, for us to persevere. And then, therefore, seeing such genuine faith in different ones, it's a reason for us to rejoice and praise God for giving genuine faith. I think that's one reason why, one reason, there there are many reasons, but but one reason why it's important to to read church history, uh, to look at those throughout the church age that, that God has given to this world that stand firm for him, that have persevered, and, and they encourage us as we see all of the, the adversity that they had gone through, and yet they were faithful to their Lord, even to the point of death. It's encouraging to us and, and encourages us to remain faithful ourselves. And so we see here Paul is remembering Timothy's genuine faith. And he remembers that it was a faith of, of a lasting heritage for Timothy. This is a faith that was first found in Timothy's grandmother, Lois, and, and then found in his mother, Eunice. We read of his mother in Acts chapter 16, verse 1. They were told that she was a Jewish woman who was a believer. And we also see there that she married a Greek man, uh, so she wasn't practicing Judaism. But nonetheless, she heard the gospel, and when she heard the gospel, she believed. And seemingly... She heard it, her mother heard it first, and then she believed. And then what we'll see in chapter 3 here is that either his mother or maybe both Timothy's mother and grandmother, they made sure that Timothy knew the scriptures from infancy. They trained him up in the word. And so we see this legacy that was passed on to Timothy from his grandmother and mother. And, you know, on uh, Tuesday night in the men's study, we, we talked about how salvation is completely in God's hands. Uh, completely. Uh, not only can we not save ourselves, uh, but we can do nothing 
to save anyone else. And that includes, for those of us who are parents, our, our kids as well. We can't save them. We must entrust them to the Lord. Yet, at the same time, the Lord does give us as parents responsibility. And he will hold us accountable to how we have strived to raise our children in the Lord. Uh, for example, we read the words of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, when he says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So what God calls us to, and, and he's going to hold us accountable to this. But nonetheless, the salvation of our children completely lies in the sovereign hands of our God. There is nothing we can do to save our kids. It's not about what we do. And really, that's a good thing, because if it's about us, if it's up to us to save our kids, we better parent pretty perfectly. And not one of us does. So if it were up to us, none of us would have kids that would be saved. But it's not up to us. It's up to the Lord. It's up to the Lord working out his sovereign will. But in the Lord working out his sovereign will, he also works out the means as well that he uses to bring individuals to salvation. And very often, as he works out his will, the means that he uses to bring those who are his to himself in salvation, to bring children of believing parents to himself, very often it's, it's the efforts of those parents that he uses. And so we do need to be responsible. And yet at the same time, trust the Lord for their salvation. And I think we, we see an example of using the means of devoted parents, and in this case too, a devoted grandmother, and bringing Timothy to know the Lord as they raised him to know the word from childhood. Again, and Paul is, is so grateful for the Lord's work in, in Timothy's life, remembering Timothy's faith, that faith that was a legacy, leading Timothy to be raised in the faith and, and to know the scriptures from childhood. And as Paul reflects on, on all that, uh, he's so grateful for to God, he's so grateful for this genuine faith that was first in his grandmother, First in Timothy's mother, and Paul then says, now that he is sure that lives in Timothy. Paul's sure of the faith of Timothy. He's certain about it. You say, well, how can he be certain about it? I mean, Paul can't see Timothy's heart, right? How does he, how is he so certain? Well, as Paul and Timothy worked side by side, as they spread the gospel together, as they planted churches together, as they organized churches together, as Paul discipled Timothy and watched him grow in the Lord and in the Lord's work, Paul saw the fruit of genuine faith produced in Timothy's life. True faith will produce fruit. It will produce evidence of that faith. It'll produce works. Faith shows itself in works. For instance, we read in the epistle of James, chapter 2, verses 17 to 20, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one? You do well. Uh, basically, it literally says you believe God is one. 
Referring back to the Mishnah, to Deuteronomy 4. In other words, you believe in good theology? You believe in the God of the Bible? (laughs) Good for you. So do the demons. And they shudder. He says, do you not, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? My friends, do you have faith like demons? Faith that gives intellectual assent to truth, but never actually depends on and trusts in that truth that you claim to believe? If you claim to have faith, who will know that you have genuine faith? Who will see it? True saving faith produces works. For if we really believe Jesus has purchased us from our sin, how could we remain as a slave to sin in our living each day? If we truly believe that Jesus is Lord, how can we remain in rebellion to our Lord without repentance? If we really believe it, if we truly have faith, Faith produces evidence in one's life. And and Paul could see that evidence of genuine faith in Timothy, that he was so certain that that faith that was in his grandmother and in his mother was in Timothy as well. And then, since Paul was certain of Timothy's faith, he says this in verse 6, For this reason I remind you. For what reason? For the, the certainty of his faith. And what does Paul remind him? He says, to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. We saw in 1 Timothy that Timothy was uh, commissioned, was ordained in the laying on of the hands of a council of elders. And uh, this could reference then that Paul was part of that council of elders or ordaining Timothy for the ministry. Now, as Paul tells him here then, to fan into flame the gift of God, there are many that take from this that Timothy's fervor and devotion to the ministry had waned. And to be fair, that, that very well could be the case. Uh, we discussed going through First Timothy the difficulty of the task before him in addressing the false teaching and practices in the church of Ephesus and how that, that must have weighed on him and affected him. So it could be that his fervency and, and, and drive and dedication to the ministry waned. But still others argue that the point here is not that Timothy was burned out or that his passion had cooled, but that based on Timothy's genuine faith, Paul was urging him to fan into flame the fullness of the giftedness that God had given him. In other words, Paul was urging Timothy to not let his foot off the pedal, to keep working hard and, and being so diligent for the Lord. And to be honest, I think that's what fits best in the context. Again, there were those who had abandoned Paul and abandoned the faith. While false teachers were running rampant in the church and persecution was was heavy and hard against the church. And so Paul wants to urge Timothy to remain faithful. Don't give up. Keep going. Fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. And associating Timothy's gift from God to Paul's laying on of hands associates this gift with Paul's call in, or Timothy's call into ministry. 
And so God's calling on Timothy's life to serve and to pastor under Paul, to plant churches with Paul, and to be his delegate to Ephesus. God had gifted Timothy for this task. Which again, whatever task God has for any of us, he gifts us for it. He gives us those abilities and the power of his spirit to do as he has called us to do in his church. Each one of us who are believers in Christ have that. For us to be functioning in the church as God has designed. So his church will be what he has desired it to be. What he has meant for it to be. And therefore all of us need to fan the flame of the gift that's given to us. All of us need to be active in using our gifts in the church. And you say, I don't know what my gift is. And we've discussed this before. If you're not sure what your gift is, you start off by praying and seeking God in that and reading his word about the gifts that he gives. And then as you're doing that, try your hand at different areas in the church. Especially if there's something you're particularly drawn to or, or if there's somewhere you see a need and you wonder, well, can I, can I meet that need? Can I, can I work at that? And talk to me about that. And then as we're, you're doing different things, seeking God in, in his place, as the church comes around you and, and recognizes God's work in those different areas, it helps you to understand where, where God is using you and how he has gifted you to serve in his church. So if, if you're saying, listen, I don't know how I'm gifted, that's, that's okay. Figure it out. Uh, let us, myself or others, help you with that as well. And, uh, but, but the thing is, though, that not using your gift at all, not figuring, that, that's not an option. Because this giftedness from God is a stewardship that is given for all of us to be working and serving in his church as he is designed. That we are members of one another, functioning together as a body, each one doing our part. And so Timothy, too, again, he was gifted to serve God in this way for God's glory. And the power of the Spirit, as God called him to. And in remaining faithful, for Timothy remaining faithful in the midst of apostasy, amidst, uh, in the midst of false teaching and persecution, Timothy couldn't let up in light of that. He had to fan into flame the gift God had given him, using what God had given him to the fullest. And in the time that Timothy was in, that was going to take courage and boldness. It would take full dependency on God. It would take recognizing that God did not give Timothy a spirit of fear. We see that in verse 7. Any fear or cowardice in obeying God and doing his will, that doesn't come from God. Instead, what God supplies to his people as they need to fulfill the, the calling and will in their lives, uh, God gives power and love and self-control, or you could say discipline. This word self-control or discipline, it, it also carries the idea of um, being sound in mind to make wise decisions. Uh, but this is what God gives for us to serve. He gives power. Why? Because you and I don't have the power. Uh, you and I don't have the strength to do it ourselves. We need to rely on his strength. And really, it's supposed to be that way. Why? Because if it was our strength, we'd get the glory. We could pat ourselves on the back and say, hey, look how good I did. Yes. But no, instead we say, look what God has done. Look how great he is that he's done this work. It's not in my strength, it's in his. He gives the power. He gives love, supplies love. 
According to Romans 5, 5, the Holy Spirit pours the love of God into the hearts of believers. In Galatians 5, we see that it's love is one of the nine that characteristics that make up the fruit of the Spirit. It's what the Spirit produces in the believer's life. There's love for God and serving Him faithfully, and there's love for others and thinking of the interests of others before our own interests. He gives us love, and you know what? It takes love to serve. It's not easy to serve. And so we must stand and say, you know, I love the Lord, and in loving Him, I'm going to serve Him. I'm going to persevere at that. And in serving faithfully, uh, it takes loving others. And, and sometimes it's, it's hard to love others because of our own sinfulness and because of the sinfulness of others. It's difficult, but, but God gives love. That we would love as we should in giving of ourselves for others. And he gives self-control, or that discipline, that, that wisdom in decision-making. Decision And in that self-control or discipline, the believer can, can have the right perspective of all uh, that he does and whatever happens. So, for instance, in the midst of hostility against the gospel, that could very well paralyze Timothy in fear, especially if he's thinking through that, that he could share the same fate that Paul was facing. But the discipline that the Lord provides can bring a steadiness to respond to one's circumstance in a God-honoring way, to respond to one's circumstances, even in the light of death, to continue to be faithful to God. Also, too, this third characteristic, this, this third thing that God provides, also can govern the other two. That we would fulfill these things as God provides in the way God intended. Uh, Josh Neamey, in his book, Expository Parenting, he said this, Think back on the first two characteristics, power and love, that were listed by Paul. On the one hand, a wrong understanding of power could have caused Timothy to behave in a prideful, domineering manner. On the other hand, a misguided grasp of love could have caused Timothy to be, under, to be undiscerning and spineless. Many of us know of the kind of pastor who leads a heavy-handed ministry running roughshod over helpless congregants. And also, we know of the kind of pastor who is, who is tolerant to a fault, leading a non-confrontational ministry of chaos. How could Timothy balance power and love in such a way that he would avoid either of these extremes? Discipline. This third characteristic is the element that determines how a person responds based on an appropriate knowledge of the situation. Therefore, this characteristic enabled Timothy to apply the other two attributes in their proper amount so that he would be neither overbearing nor overtolerant. Thus, discipline was the final factor that would be critical for the stability of Timothy's ministry. Absolutely. And that, again, is true of all of us. We have to take what God has supplied. We have to trust that he has supplied it. And put these things into practice as God has willed. So that we are a church and that we would be individuals that are faithful. That we exercise the gifts that God has given us. Faithfully serving him no matter the circumstance, no matter what lies ahead.
our God has provided for us to be faithful to him. And as the Apostle Paul reflects on this, he, again, he's so thankful for Timothy, whom he loved so dearly. And Paul was confident of the genuine faith that Timothy had. And so Paul thought to encourage him to, to persevere in his faith, uh, to be faithful in the ministry. Being in the midst of persecution and false teaching was, was not the time to be afraid and to take your foot off the pedal. It was not the time to, to back down or, or to give up. But instead, all the more, it was the time to rely on God, to trust him for the outcome, to trust that he'd faithfully provide for all that he has called Timothy to. And again, the same is true for us. Trials, pain, fear, uh, opposition that tends to cause us to react where we think we need to change course and to, to let up and, and back down. But we serve a God who is unchanging, and as he, is, as he faithfully supplies for all of our needs, let us faithfully live in dependency upon him, doing all that he has called us to do, that we would be the church and that we would be individual believers and disciples of Christ that he calls us to be. Serving and demonstrating our love for him. Serving as, as we demonstrate the love for others that he has produced in us. Demonstrating the truth of genuine faith in our lives as we remain faithful to him. Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast of North Valley Baptist Church. For the complete sermon archive and more information about the church, please go to visitnvbc.com.